I am not Dustin Epperly. We were supposed to maybe make some kind of a joke about me being Dustin, but that's not going to go over. And I don't know y'all well enough to joke with you that much, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but I am following the example of who we're going to be studying tonight, the hypocrite, the evangelist hypocrite Jonah, right? I showed up without a Bible. So even though I'm not Dustin Epperly, I am using Dustin's Bible. I'm thankful that he has one. I do have a Bible. Uh, it's at home. I've got some at the office. I've got some at home. I went from the office to the house. I helped out with the kids real quick, made some supper, and I left, and I didn't pick up my Bible before I left the house. So I, I did prepare, so I've got some notes and stuff. I just didn't have a Bible. So anyway, turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, and I'm going to try to get organized here. I've got, I feel like a one of y'all's probably professors. They don't even use these kind of folders anymore, I bet. Um, anyway, turn to Jonah chapter 4. Have you guys enjoyed studying through Jonah? Yes. Have you seen Jesus in Jonah? Have you seen the gospel in Jonah? Have you seen salvation and, and the salvation story uh, in Jonah. I hope that you have. We're going to see it tonight in Jonah chapter 4. I, I was sharing with somebody earlier that I was, uh, earlier in the day, I was going to be teaching Jonah to the students at Marshall. And she's a grandmother, so she's got a little grandson. And there's a book out. I didn't realize this is a children's book written about Jonah, but from the perspective of the whale. Have any of you ever seen, have any of you seen that? The title of it is, Hey God, I've got some guy named Jonah in my stomach, and I think I'm going to throw up. That's kind of funny, okay? It's kind of funny. Um, maybe it's not that funny. <laughs> Did y'all hear the story about the little girl at school? And they were talking about whales. And so her teacher was interacting with her a little bit, and the girl was talking about how big whales are. I know it doesn't say that it was a whale, right? It was a fish, we know that. But this little girl was talking about whales, and and how big they are, and, and the teacher was explaining, yes, they're very, they're, they're big animals. Some of them are huge, like way, way bigger than people. But the teacher was saying it would be impossible for them to swallow a, a full-grown man. And the little girl said, well, that's not true. But the Bible tells us that there was a whale, a fish that swallowed Jonah. And so the teacher kind of, okay, I know... But she reiterates again, it's impossible for a, a fish like that to swallow a man. So the little girl says, well, when I go to heaven, I'm just going to ask Jonah, did that really happen? And the teacher looked there and said, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And the little girl says, well, then you can ask him. Ooh, that was bad, wasn't it? Uh, was that too much? Right? Like, there, there's heaven, there's hell. Okay. Um, let's move to Jonah chapter 4. Uh, we, will, we will be done with that part of the show tonight. How's that? We are going to look at the mission of God in a lost world. That when we, when we look at any part of the Bible... 
it, it points us to Jesus. No matter what we're looking at, it always points us to Jesus. And there's this theme from Genesis all the way to Revelation about God's love for mankind and how He desires, He purposes to, to save men, to save women, to be His own so that they can worship Him, so that they can bring glory to Him. And we see that in the story of Jonah. But on our way to seeing the mission of God in a lost world, we're going to encounter this guy, Jonah. Okay, you've already studied some about him. You know that he was disobedient. God called him to go, and he went, right? But he just went in the opposite direction that God called him to go. Have any of you ever done anything like that? Okay, we, we tend to look at guys like Jonah and think, man, he was pathetic, wasn't he? Who in here has ever disobeyed? Everybody can raise their hand. Okay, good job. So before we get to the compassion of God and the mission of God, what we're going to see, we're going to see three things. The first thing we're going to look at, if you take notes, you can do that. The bitterness of a self-righteous man. Okay, so the bitterness of a self-righteous man. Look with me. In Jonah chapter 4. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? <clears throat> and Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there were more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? As we conclude the story, we begin to see the heart of God for the nations. But the first thing that we see is this bitter, self-righteous guy named Jonah. He's gone. He's preached. His sermon... Did he, did he give it everything he had? No. Eight words, right? 
What is it he says? Yet, I didn't say that part. No, it's in, verse, in chapter 3. Um, people of Nineveh, they sat in ashes. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, he went. He began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, and here's his sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all we've got in the text. We don't know if he said that over and over again. We don't know if he added anything to that. But that's what the text says. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here's this guy who's reluctantly going to preach a message of salvation to a lost group of people. He, he kind of does, but half-hearted, let's say. And what happens in Nineveh? Everybody repents. Everybody sits in sackcloth and ashes and they repent of their sin because they have the fear of God. They do not want to be overthrown, demolished. That word is the same word that's used to describe Sodom and Gomorrah whenever God judged that city. Look through Jonah chapter 4 here when it describes the bitterness of this self-righteous man Jonah. He was displeased, it said. He was exceedingly displeased. He was angry. Well, we know in the beginning, again, he ran away to avoid the opportunity of seeing an unreached people group repent. He says to the Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die. This is a bitter man. In verse 5, he, he climbs up on this hill. He's going to wait and see. Actually, he's hopeful that God will strike them down. I believe that's why he climbed up on the hill to look. And he's hoping that God will strike them, just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19 that word overthrow, demolish, is the same one used in Jonah chapter 3, uh, verse 4. And in the midst of Jonah's bitterness and his self-righteousness, God doesn't coddle him. I love what happens to him. He builds a, a little tent, a booth to sit up there so that he can be uh, out of the sun and there's a, a tree that grows up and God sends a worm and a wind it's, a, it's an east wind. It's blowing in from the desert. It's hot. It's dry. To continue to get Jonah's attention. God asked him in verse 4, is it okay for you to be angry? He asked him again in verse 9 about being angry. Not just angry there, but he's angry about this plant that God caused to grow and then it died and went away. Jonah felt more compassion. He had more feeling for the plant than he did for the people. It's like God's asking him there in verse 9, Jonah, where is your sense of justice? What matters more? People or this plant? What matters more, people or your comfort? Have you ever seen anybody that's bitter? Have you ever seen anybody that's self-righteous? Most of us could raise our hands at that as well, right? Here's how self-righteousness goes, okay? The, the self-righteous guy or the self-righteous lady feels like I'm better, right? I'm better than everybody else around me. Like, like these people don't measure up. So they start, self-righteousness starts with I'm better. But it quickly goes into I'm bitter, right? 
because things don't go your way. The self-righteous guy wants the world to revolve around him, but that's not how God's designed things. Right? I'm not the king of the universe. Jesus is. I need to do things Jesus' way, but when I decide I'm going to do things my way and I feel like I'm the one that's best to be in charge, then I begin to run into brick wall after brick wall, just like Jonah did, right? And if something doesn't change in my heart, I become bitter. Think about in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. Y'all probably, if you've been in church at all, you've read that story. We know that there was a man who had lots of possessions. He had two sons, an older one, of course, and then a younger one. The younger one decides, hey, I want my inheritance now. So his dad is sorrowful that his son is asking for this, has an idea of what's going to happen. He gives his inheritance to him anyway, and the son runs off and lives a wild life with all the money that he's got and all the ability that he has to party and do whatever it is that he wants to do. And he's got friends that are coming. And at a certain point, everything runs out. He doesn't have anything left. He's used it all up. And he's feeding the pigs. And he realizes that he's so hungry, he wants to eat the slop that the pigs are eating, right? And he thinks to himself... My father's servants have better food than this. I'm going to go back home. I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. This is is a guy that's been humbled, right? He says, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore, but I'm going to go back and ask my dad, can I just be a servant in your household? So we know the story. He's going back home, and on his way home, his dad, if you're a dad, this will just about make you choke up. He's looking down the road. And he sees his son and he runs to him and he embraces him and he welcomes him back. And he throws a party for his lost son who has been found. And is that the end of the story though? No. The older brother. Remember the older brother? What's the older brother doing? He's out in the field. He's working. He's dutiful. He does all the right things all the time. Or at least he thinks he does, right? And when he comes in, he sees that there's a party. He hears the celebrations, but he doesn't know what's going on. And one of the other servants comes up, hey, your brother has come home. The one who was lost has been found. Older brother ought to be happy, right? But instead, he goes to his dad and he complains. I've always done what I was supposed to do. I've always been here. I've always, what he's saying is, I really, I've always been right. I've always done the right thing. You've never thrown a party for me like that. So there's this self-righteous brother who's not, because of his self-righteousness, he's not able to see the compassion of the father for the lost son who was found. If we find ourselves in that similar self-righteous spot, like the older brother in that story, or like Jonah, in the Jonah story, we will find ourselves being bitter people who feel like it's unfair that God gives more to undeserving people than He does to me who deserves everything. That could not be farther from the gospel. Guys, do not be self-righteous. Do not be bitter. If you continue to look, here's the thing. You ever heard this one? 
Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It's like bitterness. You drink a cup of poison and you sit there while it eats in you and you wait for somebody else to die. It's not going to happen, guys. Bitterness will kill you. You say, well, I would never feel that way about anybody. I would never be self-righteous and bitter like Jonah, right? I don't know. Do you have brothers and sisters? Anybody here with brothers and sisters? Ever get mad at them? You ever wish that they would just not exist anymore? Maybe at your worst moment, right? Has, let me ask you this. Has anybody ever hurt you? Yes. Did you, did you hate them? Or come really, really close to it? Maybe. It doesn't take much to push us over into a realm that Jonah is in. I, heard, well, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and it's like, how could Jonah not have wanted an unreached people group to hear the gospel and, and, and repent and be saved? I mean, who would not want for somebody in Ethiopia to hear the gospel and be saved, right? Who would not want, wouldn't want for somebody in Pakistan to hear the gospel and be saved? I wonder, though, sometimes if we don't, we're not ethnocentric enough to look at other people groups like, like Muslims, right? I don't care if they get saved. Who cares if they go to hell? What about the terrorists, right? Who cares if they go to hell? If we're not careful, we can find ourselves in a similar spot where we're self-righteous, ethnocentric, proud, bitter people. If, if they've done that, they deserve to die. Have we ever found ourselves saying that? And you know what? It might be true, but would I be willing to say the very same thing about myself? Because the Bible says that I've done things worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. All of us deserve it. Nobody is better than anybody else. We've all rejected God. Nobody is righteous. No, not one. That's what Romans 3 tells us. The Pharisees were a lot like Jonah. And Jesus was not kind to them. So the bitterness of a self-righteous man is how we start this story. And it, it's, it's kind of rough, actually. But we very, very quickly move from that and we see the second thing I want to talk about. The compassion of a covenant-keeping God. If this story were just about Jonah we would be in trouble. It would not be a good story. But this story is not really even about Jonah. It's about a covenant-keeping God who loves people enough, we're going to see, to sacrificially give of himself so that they can be saved. Look at verse 2 there. I want to read that again. As Jonah's sitting there and he's displeased, he's angry, he prays to the Lord... And he says, basically this is what he's saying, God, I knew this was going to happen. Whenever I was back home and you called me to come to these people, I knew that you were going to do this because I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting 
from disaster. Now, we see basically that statement about the one true God in the Bible. We see that at least three times, actually four or five times in the Old Testament. If you look in Joel chapter 2, this is what the prophet Joel says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. That's what God wants. God wants to see us returning to him, coming back to him. That's why he sends Jonah to the Ninevites. That's why he sends us out into places where lost people are. He says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. A proper response to a holy God when we see our sin is that our hearts are actually torn. I can remember, uh, and I can remember being in high school and not thinking about sin very much. And I can remember being a university student and hearing the gospel preached. And you, if you're a Christian, you know what this is like. And, and it's like, it says the Bible, it's that sword that cuts into your, your heart. And God began to do surgery. And, and I could feel that my heart was torn over my sin. And I knew that God was calling me to repent. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He, re- he relents over disaster. Exodus 34, whenever God Himself appears to Moses, He takes and He puts Moses up into the cleft of the rock. And then it said in Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh, and Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, because he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third, to the fourth generation. So we, we get this picture of God who is that one that is, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Nehemiah, the same thing. He talks about the judgment of the people. He says, they refused to obey and were, mindful of the, and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to the slavery in Egypt. He's talking about during the Exodus, the time of the Exodus. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even, listen to this guys, this is the kind of compassionate, covenant-keeping, loving God who's pursuing us, okay? Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. I think about the times I've turned and and walked away from God and God in his great mercy, even when I am not pursuing him, God is pursuing me. He has that kind of mercy. He has that kind of compassion, 
that kind of love. He is slow to anger. I thought about this. What if at the very first time, he strikes us down with lightning? None of us would be here. What if the second time? Remember when the disciples came to him and, and they were fussing and they're trying to have this theological you know, debate here on forgiveness, right? Well, how many times do I really need to forgive my brother? Should I forgive him seven times? Because if you forgive somebody seven times, you're doing pretty good, right? What if somebody sins against you the same thing seven times, seven days in a row? Boom, boom, boom. At the end of the week, are you going to be ready to keep going on with forgiveness? Might think twice, right? Jesus said, nope, not seven, seven times 70. The point that God's making there is he forgives. He loves. He's pursuing us. He wants us to come back to him. And when we look, we see this compassion of a covenant-keeping God. The word that's used there for steadfast love in verse 2 is hesed. It's that Hebrew word that means covenant love. Once you've made that promise, it's never broken. I think about Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. One of the, I think the, a, a gospel illustration of this is whenever... We have heard the gospel of our salvation, that Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. We don't have to pay it. Jesus already paid it. He gives us new life. We put our faith and our hope and our trust in Him. And when we do that, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And I love what it says about the Holy Spirit there. It says, He is the down payment for the promise that God has made. He is the guarantee that God's going to be with us always and forever. And nothing can separate. And this steadfast covenant love that God has for us, that God had for the pagan Ninevites, that's what we can put our hope in. We may stumble. We may struggle. Actually, we're going to. And what God is saying is, you keep asking for forgiveness. My covenant love that I showed to you through my son Jesus is always there for you. Now, we don't really get that. When we think about love in today's world, what's coming up here in a couple of days, Valentine's Day, any boyfriend, girlfriend stuff going on here maybe. Um, we tend to think about love in terms of romance, right? Was that too condescending? I'm sorry. I've been, I, uh, that was bad, right? Um, I have a 19-year-old that's dating a, a great girl. And I probably am a little bit too that way with them too. But anyway, but it's true, guys. When we think of love and you think about what we see and what we hear most of the time is romantic love, sentimental love, emotional love, right? That's what we think of. We think of sexual love. When God talks about love and when he talks about his love for us, he's not talking about some romantic, sentimental feeling, guys. He's talking about something that's rock solid, promised, forever, never going away. He's always going to have that love for his people. It's the difference between two people that hook up for a night or a week or a year or whatever, and then they just kind of go off and do their thing after that, and two people who say no. We're going to have a lifelong commitment 
And it's really going to be till death do us part. When, when we're watching TV, this is the one that kind of turns us on a little bit, right? The hookup stuff. My, my mother-in-law, she's funny. She, she'll say, oh yeah, we started watching this new TV show and it started off really, really good. But after a few episodes, it got kinky. That's what she says. It was, and, okay. That's weird, right? To be sitting there having a conversation with your mother-in-law and she's using the word kinky. And I'm like, no. Stop. Um, when my wife and I got married, we met in Durham, North Carolina. We were attending a church and there was a couple there called the Brits, Mr. and Mrs. Britt. At the time, he was 91 years old and she was 90. They had been together since they were 16 years old. Think about that. And so we would talk with the Brits. Actually, they lived across the street from us. And I can remember, it gets hot in the summertime in North Carolina. And I remember one time I look across the street and there's this cloud of dust. Mr. Britt, 91 years old, he's out there mowing his yard with a push mower. Crazy. We went over to their house one evening. Their house was decorated like it was kind of from the 1940s, right? Because that was them. And it was so sweet to watch this couple in their 90s who had been together for 75 years. Think about that. And they would serve each other tea. And then they would serve us tea. And I can remember thinking to myself very, very clearly, that is the kind of lifelong love commitment that I want. I don't want the hookup stuff. I don't want the emotional, sentimental, romantic. I want there to be emotion and sentiment and romance. I'm not saying that, but I don't want it to be only that or merely that. And sweet part of that story, they got older together. They went to the nursing home together. I know y'all hear these stories. She passed away, and two days later, he passed away. God had put them together in a special way. Sad story. At the very, very end, yes, but it was a beautiful story. And guys, that love that they had for each other, that is just a tiny, tiny glimpse. It's a glimpse. It shows us a bit, but it's just a tiny glimpse of the covenant love that God has for us and that he wants to give to us, not just for this lifetime, but for eternity. So whenever we read Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, and we see about a gracious God who's merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast covenant love. Please let God love you that way through Jesus. Please put your trust in the Son of God so that you can enter into this covenant forever love relationship with God. And that's really where we find joy. That's where we find hope. When we talk about John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, that's what we're talking about. That's why he sent his son to die. So we see these polar opposites. We see this bitter, self-righteous man who reluctantly obeys God. And then we see the compassion and the love of a covenant-keeping God. And here's the thing that I think happens. When, when you see sin and God's love come together, that's when you start to see mission, right? 
When you see God's love and compassion reaching into a sinful world, into the Ninevites' world, right? Even God wanting to reach into Jonah's world. That's when you begin to see the mission of God. So number three, I want us to look at real quick the mission to a lost and dying world. Look at verse 11. So Jonah's pouting. He's having his, his feel sorry for myself. Woe is me moment. And here's what God says to him in Jonah 4.11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. First, look, look at the massive numbers of lost people there. 120, over 120,000 lost people. I think about West Virginia. 1.8 million-ish, right? Statistically, 80%, at least 80% are lost. Certain counties, 90 to 95% lost in West Virginia. That's a lot of lost people. Go to Walmart, 9 out of 10. 8 out of 10. They don't know Jesus. Guys, we've got work to do. God says they don't know their right hand from their left. And it's, it was an idiom in, in the time for... They were, they were morally and they were spiritually unaware. Now, we know what Romans 1 teaches, right? There's no excuse. God's made it clear. We look at the heavens. We see that there was design. We, we know that there was a designer. So it's not that they get a pass because they were unaware. It's that God calls us, God called Jonah to go out so that they could be aware, so that they could have the opportunity to hear the truth and respond to the gospel. That's the mission of God. God is pursuing people so that they can be saved from their sin. When we, you know, Luke 15, we looked at that a minute ago. Look back at Luke 15. Jesus talks about the lost sheep, right? He talks about the lost coin. He talks about the lost or the prodigal son. And then in Luke 19, verse 10, this is what Jesus says about himself. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. God has a mission it's to seek and to save the lost. God wanted Jonah to go to the Ninevites. Where does God want us to go? What does God want us to do? Pull out the paper that you got whenever you came in this evening. I hope you didn't ball it up or make a... Do y'all make paper airplanes out of stuff? You probably don't. That was like a middle school thing, right? See, I still have a middle schooler. Um, I hope she doesn't do paper airplanes. Look at this with me for just a little bit. So we saw the lostness of Nineveh there, right? I want us to think about the world for a minute. Now, if you, if you look at the world and you're just looking at different countries in the world, most countries in the world, probably, actually, almost basically every country in the world is going to have some evangelical Christians somewhere, right? Most countries are going to have some evangelical Christians somewhere. So, is that good enough? No, that's not good enough. And here's why that's not good enough. Turn with me real quickly to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. There's a word that you may know, you probably know. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. When John gets a revelation of heaven... This is what he sees. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. So he's looking 
out at heaven. He sees a multitude of people, so many people that you can't number them. They were people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Here's the thing. It's not just enough that there are Christians in every country in the world. The Bible says that there will be Christians from every ethnic group, every ethne. Every language will be represented in heaven. Here's a couple of things I want us to point out, and then we're going to pray about this, guys. People groups. If you look on the side, people group perspective. There are, and sociologists are going to disagree a little bit on this, but roughly speaking, there's about 17,000 people groups in the world, ethnic groups that have their own culture, their own language, that kind of thing, 17,000 of them. Unreached people groups, I believe these are the ethne that the Bible talks about. There are still over 7,000 unreached people groups. Of the people groups in the world, 41.5% are still unreached, meaning that less than 2% Christian. The population of the unreached people groups in the world is 3.1 billion over 40% of the world. Look down there at India. This is mind-blowing, guys. This is staggering. 2,560 people groups in India, 2,292 unreached people groups in India. 90% of the people groups in India are unreached. Do we need to be sending more missionaries to India? Yes. Do we need to be training local Indian Christians who are of people group A? Do we need to be training them to go to people group B? Because 90% of the people groups in India are unreached. It's kind of cool. Um, I go to Cross Lanes Baptist. Uh, one, we've got a family from Cross Lanes that went to India about seven years ago, and they're working with unreached people groups in India. There is another uh, pastor who just has been commissioned, and they will be leaving next month to go to India to work with unreached people groups in India. Look at China. 543 people groups, 444 unreached people groups, 82%. Pakistan, did, you said you're praying for Pakistan. I heard something about Pakistan. Maybe while you pray, God would call one of you guys to go to Pakistan one day. 422 people groups, 414 of those are unreached people groups. 98% of Pakistan, Pakistani people groups, are unreached. Guys, we've not done a great job going to the nations. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups. If you look down there at the 1040 window, have you guys heard of the 1040 window? Okay. The vast, vast majority of unreached peoples are in the 1040 window. However, the vast majority of missionaries around the world are not in the 1040 window. We need to change that. I, I, believe, um, I believe God is calling more, God is calling people from ministries like this one to go to these places.
81%, this is an interesting statistic, 81% of Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus around the world do not personally know a Christ follower. 81%. I think about what it says in Romans. How are they going to hear? How are they going to believe if they don't hear, right? And how are they going to hear if nobody goes? And how are they going to go if, if we don't send? And I know that you guys are one of those churches. Actually, you guys are a little bit famous. You probably don't know that. I hear stories about you guys on campus sharing the gospel, in the community, talking to folks, people getting saved, people being baptized. I know that you guys are thinking about going. I know that Adam is at an event here talking about go to. He's going to come back and share some of that. I'm interested in knowing more about the details of this go to, but here's basically what that's going to look like. And I hope I'm not stealing his thunder. He'll have a whole lot more than this. You guys are at a perfect point in your life to say, okay, God, I've not yet settled down, right? I've not yet uh, maybe even started a family. I've got some flexibility in, in the system here. God, I will give you two years. God, you tell me where you want me to go. When I graduate... You want me to go to Morgantown and help plant a church up there? I'll go up there and work for two years. God, you want me to go to Pakistan and help engage an unreached people group? I'll go for two years. When, when I was in college, I started hearing the gospel. I believed. Um, I started being active in campus ministry, campus crusade. And I remember very, very Clearly, God's speaking to me about international missions. So I go to seminary, and I'm pursuing that, and I meet Beth, and I'm not sure if she's that interested, so I'm kind of pursuing her a little bit more, right, than I'm pursuing the international missions thing. So once we're engaged, and I feel like I've got her locked up pretty good, um, I kind of throw the missions thing on her, right? Hey, honey, what do you think about this? She's like, I don't know. First of all, I said, what do you think about going to China? She's like, I would love to go to China for a vacation. Um, And that's not what I was talking about. So before there was a go-to, um, IMB's been doing this for a long, long time. They have their journeyman program. They have these, at the time, they called it an a ISC program, International Service Corps. Uh, they still have these things, guys. International Mission Board. Um, I said, let's go for two years. Now, that didn't make me some super smart guy. I, I was trying to figure out what God wants me to do. So we went for two years. The real hero in this story is always God. The number two hero is my wife. The first nine months, give or take, she cried every single day. We had been married less than a year when we got on the mission field. So the second year of our marriage, my wife's crying every day. Who, who like, dreams of that, right? Nobody. Like, you guys, you don't dream of that. I'm sitting there thinking, her dad's a really big guy, you know? And I'm thinking, okay, um, I'm glad he's not here because he would not be happy with the fact she's crying every day. And so we we we're slogging, we're working through language school. It's hard. Culture shock is real. I guess Dustin's trying to figure out how to probably go to the bathroom and do things like that, right? You know how to say, where's the bathroom in that local language sometimes. And so that first year was tough. And I remember the second year we pushed ourselves, we went out and we began working with this unreached people group. 
And we saw a family come to faith in Christ. We saw the dad and the mom, three boys, and then their little girl, all came to faith. My, my, my Chinese teacher, she became a Christian. Her sister became a Christian. The sister's fiance became a Christian. Then her husband, my teacher was a Buddhist. He becomes a Christian. His, practically his whole family becomes Christian. He has planted, he has started five different house churches in the city that he lives in in China over the last 10 years. Think about that. We were able, guys, and this is, what I'm talking about here is the, I'm not talking about nothing about Dan. What I'm talking about is the faithfulness of God and being a part of his mission out there in the world so that we can see Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, like happening in front of us, right? We worked with a guy named Xiao He. He became a Christian. His friend, uh, Jordan, we called him Jordan. His English name was Jordan. He became a Christian. We're having Bible study. We get to the part about baptism, right? Well, Jordan got baptized earlier. I didn't know he'd been baptized already. Shao has never been baptized. So I'm like, hey, we're filling up the bathtub. We are baptizing tonight, right? Jordan, I want you to baptize your friend because you are going to be a gospel worker and you're going to be out working with your people group. You need to know how to baptize people. So Jordan's like, yeah, cool. We're going to do this. We fill up the water and we want to get him because we're Baptists. We want to get him as far down into the water as we can, right? And so Jordan just grabs his friend Shalha's head and just jams him down. <laughs> Like into the bottom of the bathtub, right? Shalha did not die. And he, I don't, today, Shalha is trans, he comes from an unreached people group. He's translating the Bible into two dialects of that unreached people group's language. Guys, that's what God's doing all over the world. And here's what we do sometimes. We get so concerned about job and retirement and this and that and, and can I have this house or that car or this promotion or whatever that looks like, right? How, how we pursue that, that American life sometimes and it, it, it really can be self-serving. And if we're not careful, we can miss out on what God's doing all over the world. I've quoted this to you guys. Some of you have heard it. Maybe some of you have. I'm going I'm to read it again. A guy named James Frazier. He was born in 1886 in England. He was a university student when he came across this little pamphlet, and this is what it said. He was a Christian. He was planning to, to get his engineering degree and be a good engineer and a good church member and a good husband, dad, and raise up a family that went to church, and he's good. This is what he read. A command has been given. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It has not been obeyed. More than half the people in the world have never yet heard the gospel. What are we to say to this? Surely it concerns us Christians very seriously. For we are the people who are responsible. If our master returned today to find millions, billions of people unevangelized, and looked as, of course, he would look to us for an explanation, I cannot imagine what explanation we should have to give. Of one thing I am certain, that most of the excuses we are accustomed to make with such good conscience now, we shall be wholly ashamed of then. 
It was those words written by a missionary in China in a booklet entitled Do Not Say that compelled James Frazier to go to China, to flee England, run to China, and to give the rest of his life so that the Lisu people, he worked among a group of people called the Lisu people. For 10 years he labored and didn't see anybody get saved. He prayed, he shared the gospel. He prayed, he shared the gospel. He, he, he taught. But at year 10, something happened. Today, the majority of Lisu people are Christian. And Lisu go all throughout China, India, Southeast Asia to share the gospel and to plant churches among unreached people groups. Because this guy, when he was a college student and came under conviction, he said, I'll go. He didn't live as long as he would have if he had stayed in England probably. He didn't make as, money, as much money as he would have if he would have stayed in England. But I really don't think any of those things matter when it comes to eternity. Jim Elliott, uh, famous missionary, you've heard it, uh, about him, died as a very young man, um, trying to take the gospel to the Aka Indians. He said it this way, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I pray that we would be people who are on mission with God, obeying Him, and going to the nations. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word that teaches us. God, how you have shown us clearly what is your plan for the world. God, how you, you loved the world. God, you loved us so much. You loved the Indians. God, the Chinese, the Pakistanis, God. All of the unreached people groups that make up all of these countries that we see around the world. God, you loved each and every one of them so much that you sent your son to die on the cross so that the penalty for our sins and their sins could be paid. And God, so that there could be a day whenever Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 is happening in heaven. And we all come together from each one of these nations and languages to worship you and to praise you. God, I pray that you would send us out to be a part of the work that you're doing to continue to take the gospel to these unreached people groups. God, I pray for the students that are here uh, this evening, God, and, and for this church. God, I pray that as they study, God, as they graduate, as they think and they, they plan and they, they kind of process through what their life is going to look like, especially these next few years. God, that they would be willing and open to obey and to go, God, wherever it is that you call them to. And that, God, I pray you would call some of them to be like James Frazier. God, they would go to unreached people groups. God, that they would invest their lives long term. God, to, to share, to teach. God, translate the Bible. God, I pray that all of us would be people who support. God, who give, who pray. God, give us a heart for the nations. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.